God is good. And all the time, I've got good news. Today, if you'll bear with me, we will wrap up and we will conclude the book of Job. Amen. <laughs> you know, I told you when I started this sermon series that God laid it on my heart early in the year, and I disobeyed. I'm embarrassed to tell you that, but I disobeyed, and I said, I'm not preaching the book of Job. People don't like it. I don't like it. It's drudgery. Job didn't like it. And then when, uh, when life's rug got pulled out from under my feet and my life just got flipped, turned upside down like Will Smith, um, I realized God, God, God was on to something. God knew what He was doing, and that's why He wanted us to go through the book of Job. Uh, after, after starting this book, back in September, today, here on the last Sunday of April, we're finally concluding. Uh, I'm going to tell you, it's, uh, it's helped me, and it's, it's spoke to my heart, and I pray that the Holy Spirit and His Word has spoke to you about struggles and about God's, God's sovereignty. And how he's in control. And even when you don't understand, he's got a plan. He's got a plan and a purpose. And uh, maybe this book has encouraged you and given you a little hope. Um, I will tell you that so far what we've seen is uh, obviously Job spoke. And then his three friends spoke. And then that fourth friend finally piped up towards the end. And then last week we began with God's reply. God's reply. And his response continues where we are today. So go ahead, if you haven't already, and open your Bibles to Job 39. Job 39. This is a continuation of God responding, God speaking. And so if you have your place there in Job 39, I invite you, if you're physically able, to stand. Stand in honor of the reading of God's Word from Job 39. God asked the question to Job, Do you know when mountain goats give birth? Have you watched the deer in labor? Can you count the months they are pregnant so you can know the time they give birth? They crouch down to give birth to their young. They deliver their newborn. Their offspring are healthy and grow up in the open field. They leave and do not return. Who set the wild donkey free? Who released the swift donkey from its harness? I made the wilderness its home and the salty wasteland its dwelling. It scoffs at the noise of the village and never hears the shouts of a driver. It roams the mountains for its pasture land, searching for anything green. Would the wild ox be willing to serve you? Would it spend the night by your feeding trough? Can you hold the wild ox to a furrow by its harness? Will it plow the valleys behind you? Can you depend on it because its strength is great? Would you leave it to do your hard work? Can you trust the wild ox to harvest your grain and bring it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but are her feathers and plumage like the storks? She abandons her eggs on the ground and lets them be warmed in the sand. She forgets that a foot may crush them or that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not her own with no fear that her labor may have been in vain. For God has deprived her of wisdom. 
He has not endowed her with understanding. When she proudly speaks, her wings, when she pr proudly spreads her wings, she laughs at the horse and its rider. Do you give strength to the horse? Do you adorn his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? His proud snorting fills one with terror. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He charges into the battle. He laughs at fear since he is afraid of nothing. He does not run from the sword. A quiver rattles at his side along with a flashing spear and a lance. He charges ahead with trembling rage. He cannot stand still at the trumpet sound. When the trumpet blasts, he snorts defiantly. He smells the battle from a distance. He hears the officer's shouts and the battle cry. Does the hawk take flight by your understanding and spread its wings to the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and make its nest on high? It lives on a cliff where it spread, spends the night. Its stronghold is a, on a rocky crag, but from there it searches for prey. Its eyes penetrate the distance. Its brood gulps down blood, and where the slain are, it is there. Job, do you know any of this? Do you have any idea of how all this is a part of the creation? Do you know how these things work? Do you have control over these things? Job, you've been fretting and fretting and fretting like some of you here today about life, and you have absolutely no control over these things. And the maker of heaven and earth was declaring that day, and he's declaring today, let it go. And let God. Amen. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, speak to us today by the ringing of your word, through the moving of your Holy Spirit. Hide me behind that old rugged cross that today that there'd be no distractions or hindrances to us hearing the truth and living out the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All of this that God responds to reminds Job of his own mortality, his own weaknesses, his own shortcomings, his own frailty. When God speaks, people listen, or they should. And God, for a long time, like I mentioned last week, has been trying to get our attention with different things that are happening, and we just go from one tragedy, one event to the next without ever stopping and saying, God, is there something I'm to learn from this? Is there something I'm to change? But God is replying to Job. And in this response, it humbles Job because he recognizes, I don't know how any of this works. I don't understand creation. I have no control over creation. And many of you came in here today with a bunch of burdens and a bunch of junk and a bunch of stress about things that you don't have control over. You don't have control over your coworkers. You don't have control over your, your boss. You don't have control over people on airline drive. Can I get a witness? You don't have control over who's in the White House. You don't have control over a lot of these things that you are so stressed out about. And you need to hear from God just like Job did. Job, who are, who are you that, that you would ask this and that you would try and understand this? It was a humbling thing for Job to experience. In fact, I don't know how often you've thought about this, but the other night, I let Presley go outside and, and do her thing. And uh, as I'm looking up, it was one of those nights that there was not a cloud in the sky. And the stars and the planets, the constellation were just so beautiful and so bright. But as I stood there in my backyard in Benton, in Benton, Louisiana, and on, on the backside of Palmetto, I'm looking up. 
And I just started thinking about how small I am compared to this space that I'm looking at. Have you ever stepped outside and thought about where you're at on this little bitty part of the North American continent? And there's this whole earth. And then take it one step further and think about the Milky Way. Think about space. Think about the universe. When you start thinking about those things and you realize how small you are. Who am I that God is mindful of me? Who am I? The creator of all this, the one who hangs it in the balance, who has the earth in a perfect 23 degree tilt, that if it were just a half a degree off of that, we'd go either flying off, we'd either burn up or freeze to death depending on which angle it changed. God is the creator and maker and sustainer of all this. And so he's asking Job, Hey, Joe, do you know any of this? Do you have any, any of this figured out? Once you look at 40, his response continues. The Lord answered Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? <laughs> Let him who argues with God give an answer. Then Job answered the Lord. And this ought to be your response. I am so insignificant. How can I Answer you, God. I place my hand. Here's a suggestion for all of you. (laughs) I place my hand over my mouth. Boy, we we can solve a lot of problems and a lot of drama in our own lives. Somebody the other day said... uh, they were mentioning that you know they have a bad uh, anger issue and sometimes they just say things that they regret... And as I was talking to them, I noticed they were kind of talking funny. And I said, well, well did you have dental surgery recently or something? Said, no, but uh, somebody told me if I just bit my tongue, I, could, I would not say things that I regret. And I thought bit my tongue off. <laughs> It'd be good for some of us to take that hand and put it over our mouth. Job says, I, I, I'm so insignificant. How can I answer you? I have spoken once, and I will not reply twice, but now I can add nothing. Look at the Lord's response. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Remember that. I mentioned that last week. God will sometimes speak to you in the middle of your chaos. A whirlwind, like a storm, like a tornado. I I, I know we're thinking God's going to come to us in the peaceful moments when we're walking on top of the mountain, but oftentimes He speaks to us out of the whirlwind, out of the chaos. The problem is, are you even going to be aware of it? Are you even going to hear it? Because you're so caught up and distracted in the chaos that maybe you don't hear. But God says, get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? By the way, that whole idea, I meant to mention this, but that whole idea or act of placing your hand over your mouth, I read a commentary this week where he said that is the most worshipful gesture that a human being can do. Take this right here and put it over that right there the next time you go to have a quiet time. Quit talking, quit thinking, and just listen and just read. We get so busy and we get so focused on our wants and our agenda when we come to the the time to approach God that we're so busy moving our lips and talking and giving giving him a, a wish list that we have that we don't even slow down long enough to listen to God 
We want to slow down and listen to God. It's one of the most, this commentator said it's the most worshipful gesture of all. Total submission, putting your hand over your mouth. By the way, Proverbs 13, uh, Proverbs 13 and 3 said that uh, he who controls the tongue will live long. Miss <laughs> Miss Faye, I don't mean to pick on you, but I tell you what, we could all learn from the spirit and service of somebody like Miss Faye. Because I'm going to tell you this, she didn't tell me she's going to go out there and cut down a tree. She didn't. She didn't run it by no committee. She just got out there. She didn't talk about it. She didn't think about it. She just got her done. She just went out there with a hatchet. Okay. He who controls the sun will live long. Live long. By the way, he goes on to mention here, I want to point out in verse 15. Go drop down to verse 15 of Job 40. Look at Behemoth, which my I made along with you he eats grass like an ox. Look at the strength of his loins and the power in the muscles of his belly. He stiffens his tail like a cedar tree. The tendons of his thighs are woven firmly together. His, his bones are bronze tubes. His limbs are like iron rods. He is the foremost of God's works. Only his maker can draw the sword against him. So in Job, we've already been introduced to behemoth. This is this giant beast. And we've also heard about Leviathan, and we're going to see his name here again uh, mentioned in the next chapter. Uh, Behemoth and Leviathan. So there's a lot of talk on this, but I'll just get right to the point. Um, so some commentators suggest that Behemoth was a like a type of alligator, but a prehistoric alligator. Uh, Leviathan in the Bible, uh, the best way to translate that is a twisting creature of the sea, a twisting creature of the sea. Its size was something to be uh, reckoned with. It was a huge sea beast that back in uh, ancient history used to scare uh, those that had nautical experience and sailors. Some commentators suggest that it's a you know a prehistoric uh, alligator behemoth and the Leviathan they seem to think of more like some type of uh, giant eel. I think that's kind of rationalizing and trying to make it more comfortable for us to receive. Whereas I believe the most, uh, the best documented translation of those two words, behemoth and leviathan, are most certainly what people had no name for, but what we have come to call in science class dinosaurs. So there are all kinds of people out there that say, you know, your Bible's not real because it doesn't even mention dinosaurs. Where are dinosaurs in the Bible? And I love when they ask that. Because I'm like, oh, you've never read the Bible. Oh, I read it from cover to cover. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know what translation you're reading, but let me just show you this. And when I show that to them, even in the context of English, Leviathan and Behemoth, uh, there's a little bit of humility there. They go, well, I had never known that, never paid attention to that. What I'm suggesting to you is whether it is some prehistoric uh, alligator, Behemoth, or whether it's some type of giant eel, uh, Leviathan, <laughs> I believe that we have evidence right here because remember, it's the oldest book in the Bible and it's referencing things that go back in time. And so I believe the best translations of those words come from words similar. In fact, Leviathan not only means twisting 
uh, twisting serpent, but it also, one translation, uh, translated it as, are you ready? The sea dragon. The sea dragon. Well, if you don't know what something is that's popping its ugly head out of the, the water, and you just refer to that as either a twisting serpent, Leviathan, or if you refer to it as a sea dragon, because that's the only thing in your context that you're familiar with, we should surely appreciate the fact and understand the fact that that was more than likely a dinosaur. And what God is saying here, Job, the two creatures that used to provoke fear in the hearts of Job's generation, Behemoth and Leviathan. People were in fear of Behemoth and Leviathan. And God is saying here, you can't even control Behemoth. You have no say over Leviathan. In fact, look at, look at me with Job 41. Job 41, can you pull in Leviathan with a hook or tie his tongue down with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he, Leviathan, beg you for mercy or speak softly to you? Will he make covenant with you so that you can take him as a slave forever? Can you play with him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain for him or divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay a hand on him. You will remember the battle and never repeat it. He's saying, Job, this Leviathan and behemoth of your generation that you're so scared of, I'm the sovereign creator of the universe. The Leviathan answers to me. The behemoth cowers to me. God is, is, is humbling Job by revealing creation and how creation is at God's beck and call. And he sets boundaries and he says you can do this and you can do that. You can go this far and no more. God is the one who has designed all this. God is the one who has control over this. Job did not. And it's a humbling thought for Job to sit there and go, oh, man, I can't even control my temper, much less the Leviathan. It was a humbling experience for Job to recognize his own shortcomings. And by the way, let's talk about this for a minute. I found it interesting in my research of Leviathan that over the years there's been talk about a Leviathan spirit in the church. A Leviathan spirit in the church. That word twisting, that word serpent, twisting serpent. Uh, he wiggles his, he or she wiggles their way into a church or into a body of believers and tries to do this right here, divide. Because they twist things and they literally get, get people against one another and create uh, disharmony and disunity. You have to be aware of a spirit in you and in me and in the church that's called the spirit of Leviathan. It can affect every one of us and sometimes when we least expect it. You may be, you may be an innocent tool in the hands of the enemy. You may not have stepped into this intentionally. You may have not tried to get involved in this, but somehow, some way, that Leviathan tried to draw you in and then with his twisting, it's the same thing the enemy always does. And remember in the Garden of Eden, what did Satan say when Eve said, we're not supposed to eat of that, that tree or we'll surely die. He said, oh, God didn't say that. That's not what he meant. That's twisting what God means. That's twisting the truth. God knows that if you eat of this, your eyes will be opened. And after all, who doesn't want to have their eyes opened? Who doesn't want to know all these things? Take of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. So just food for thought there. 
be careful of that divisive spirit. Again, God's point here is Job is not able to set boundaries for a sea creature, a sea dragon, or control these things, but God can and God does. Now let's go all the way to chapter 42. Chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely, I spoke about things I did not understand. Are you willing to admit that you've spoken in ignorance a couple of times in your life, maybe? Are you willing to admit that you let your mouth get ahead of your brain and you said some things you regret? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I heard rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Glory be. I've heard about you, God, but now I've experienced you firsthand. Now I know. Therefore, I take back my words. Yeah, you do. And repent in dust and ashes. Job admits his weaknesses. Job admits that he is he is humbling himself here. I've uttered what I did not understand. And I, I'm going to tell you, I sense that he's sincere here. See, I sometimes worry that people repent when they get caught. Yeah, they're not sorry about their sin. They're sorry that they got caught. And that's a dangerous thing because that means that you don't have truly a remorse about what you did. You're just sorry you got caught. There's a tremendous difference. Are you genuinely, listen to me, don't play games with God. Are you genuinely sorry for what you've done, what you've said, what you've been involved in? Then here's what God wants from you. Not playing games. He doesn't want you to go through the motions. He wants you to be sincere. God, I, I am sincere. I repent, which means if I was heading in this direction, I change my direction and I start walking in the other way. Not because you caught me walking the wrong way. Not because somebody judged me, but I genuinely in my heart want to change. I genuinely in my heart want to go in a different direction. I sense that Job here is very sincere. Very sincere. He says there, Therefore I take back my words and repent in dust and in ashes. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends. Now that would be the three. It's going to be interesting in this context. We don't hear about Elihu. Don't get Eliphaz and Elihu confused. Elihu is the last one who spoke and the younger of all the three friends. God doesn't reference Elihu. A lot of commentary on that, by the way. But here's what, here's what God does. He holds these three friends accountable because of all the foolishness that they had spoke. He says here, <clears throat> He says, I'm angry with you and your two friends for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now take seven bulls and seven rams. I've told you before, numbers are important. Seven, the number of God, the number of completion, the number of perfection. You need seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. Then my servant Job will pray for you. Does this sound like Moses when he interceded on behalf of the Jews? When God was about to come down and wreck shop? 
when God was about to come down and hold them accountable, Moses interceded. Moses went and said, oh, but wait, wait, wait. So listen, he's saying here, then my servant Job will pray for you. I will surely accept his prayer and not deal with you as your folly deserves. For you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Then Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namanite went and did as the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. The Lord accepted Job's prayer. Look at verse 10, and this is the turning point for Job's life. What was the turning point for your life? I can tell you with all the suffering and all the stuff that Job went through, here's when his circumstances changed. Here's the turning point. After Job had prayed for his friends. What? Yeah. The three friends, and fourth if you throw in Elihu, who gave him terrible advice, who beat him when he was down, who made fun of him in his condition and made fun of him in his struggle, it tells you in the Bible, the turning point came after Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored. Turn to your neighbor and says that means restored. The Lord restored. So not only did the Lord accept, the Lord accepted, now the Lord restored. The Lord restored his prosperity and doubled his previous possessions. He not only restored, but he doubled his previous possessions. I love this next part because through all of this, Job was destitute. Job was isolated. Job, other than the three friends that finally showed up, he had nobody there with him. But this tells you all his brothers, sisters, and former acquaintances came to his house and dined with him in his house. They sympathized with him, and I love this next part, and comforted him concerning all the adversity the Lord had brought on him. Each one gave him a cassetta and a gold earring. The value of that is unknown, by the way. Totally unknown. So the Lord blessed. So not only did the Lord, the Lord accept, the Lord restored, but the Lord blessed. The Lord blessed the last part of Job's life more than the first. Now we started in Job chapter 1 with mentioning all of his possessions, all of his wealth, all of his things. And yet now I'm reading here that it says the Lord blessed the last part of his life more than the first. He owned 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named his first daughter Jemiah, his second Kezia, and his third Karen Hapach. No women as beautiful as Job's daughters could be found in all the land. You know what that sound was? Job had beautiful daughters, so he also had a beautiful shotgun that he kept beside him. <laughs> no women as beautiful as Job's daughters could be found in all the land, and their father granted them an inheritance with their brothers. Job lived, here we go, Job lived 140 years after this and saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. Some of you have been blessed. Some of you have been blessed to see multiple generations come. I've got my first grandbabies, and I'm so excited. Little twins. Little twins. 
But think about Job's situation here. So blessed that he was able to see the children to the fourth generation. Then Job died, oh, old and full of days. Job's heartache was finally healed. Job's heartbreak became joy. And Job's humility was his saving grace. Heartache, heartbreak, and humility. He died full of days, living life to the full, the abundant life that Jesus promises. But you know what? I want to show you something that you noticed if you were here, you paid attention to. Job chapter 1 gave us all a clue about how all this would wind up. And so you're probably thinking, Brother Chad, why did we have to go through over 40 chapters if it was all right there in chapter 1? Well, because listen, sometimes you have to go through the trial to appreciate the triumph. Sometimes you have to be tested so that you have a testimony. Sometimes you've got to get in a mess so God can turn it into a message. But here it was all along. Right here, Job chapter 1. Why didn't you tell us this? Job chapter 1, look at verse 20. Then Job stood up. That's it right there. Job stood up. What do you mean that's it? When I think about it. Right before he stood up, what had just happened? Well, let's, let's look at it this way. His possessions had all been lost. He lost all the camels, all the donkeys. All, all his possessions were lost. His home got destroyed. His children were killed. Everything fell. But Job stood. And there it was all along in the very first chapter of the oldest book in the Bible. When everything falls, will you stand? When everything falls apart, will you say, like Job, there it is right, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'll leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Praise the name of Yahweh. There it was all along. When everything falls, will you stand? Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts right here. Right now, in this part of the service that we call the invitation,